So, last February, I was a little uncomfortable. Rachel saying, why were you uncomfortable, Cy? In fact, Stella and I both found ourselves a little uncomfortable. Why? Well, like many of you, we were up at the Meadowlands, standing outside in a line of what I believed to be the coldest and windiest day of the year. For an hour and a half, we stood there, slowly creeping forward and watching the line getting shorter and shorter and shorter until the magic moment we had hoped for, the moment of Pfizer. It was a celebratory day, and of course, the first of two such days to become fully vaccinated. We may have been cold, but in all honesty, like the hundreds of other people who were there, we were laughing and we were joking, and I was entertaining the crowd, and we were being incredibly patient. We knew we were, in our own small way, making history and being part of something so much bigger than ourselves. Our little act at that time helped to turn the tide of this pandemic. It was and is, in all sincerity, a moment of worship and a holy moment for us. And I imagine that this was the scene throughout the country. And for a couple of months after that, it certainly was. We heard stories of people lining up in cars, going to community centers and ball fields throughout the country to do what we did, make COVID history. But then something strange happened that I don't know if anybody could foresee. People started to decline to take the shot. When I look back, I suppose I was only somewhat puzzled. Unlike our parents who knew how important the MMR shots were or the polio shots uh, and who made it a point to protect us as children, too many people, as we all know, resisted the vaccination. In different parts of the country, as we know, the vaccination became the political issue. Many protested. Some threatened medical workers. In fact, this morning as well all the time insisting that their freedom was being taken away. Some of them were the same people who insisted that wearing a mask to protect others also took away their freedom, and it just spiraled from there. Let's see, there were rumors of Bill Gates putting in microchips in the vaccine, which, by the way, is a physical impossibility. There were rumors that the vaccine alters the DNA somehow. And my brother-in-law, who is a PhD in DNAology, will tell you that it doesn't happen. And rumors that it was part of a massive slow genocide. It was, it was amazing to watch. Now, I don't discount the fear that many felt. But that fear usually could be addressed with solid education. What bothered me more than anything else was that is, is that the many screaming for freedom from masks or from taking the vaccine not only put you and I at risk, 
but showed a phenomena in this country that both we as a nation and as a Jewish community need to address. And what is that phenomena? It is this. It is the fraying sense of of shared history and a shared future. It is the disintegration of communities, of real connections with one another, of the deeply spiritual bonds that can only form in Hevruta in partnership. Our sages tell us that real learning cannot happen alone. I believe that, and I have seen that in my decades and decades as a teacher. In my Wednesday morning theology class, in my Saturday morning Torah class, in my Sunday morning Torah class, Talmud class, the many students were so insightful that I understood what the Talmud meant when it said, from my teachers I have learned much, but from my students I have learned so much more. A person learning alone may be a sharp knife, but without a whetstone, another study partner, the knife becomes dull over time. This is what I saw and still see in in communities throughout this nation. (laughs) The demand for individual freedom to the exclusion of everyone and everything else is what is defining us in what seems to be a kind of spiritual fallout Too many people are taking themselves out of real communities and trying to live among others without actually having to interact with anybody on a meaningful level. And while it is true that the opposite is happening to some degree, that is many people are thirsting to get out and connect more, too many people are trying to stay spiritually isolated in their own bubbles, in their own small circles, And in some cases, of course, do not even want to leave their home or can't. We see this in the real statistics of religious communities as well. The pandemic only exacerbated the already extant conditions. According to one study, one in five religious institutions will close down forever in the United States alone. A colleague of mine points out that this is true in the Jewish world as well. He told me of the story, or he didn't tell me, I read the story of the Concord Temple in Syracuse, uh, which uh, is one of New York's oldest synagogues. The congregation sold its building last year, and though the congregation is fully functioning, the building itself, the holy spot where people were born, where they were educated, where they were inspired and challenged, where they were married and buried, had closed forever. So what happened? Well, you probably already figured it out. Concord Temple was founded in 1839, but its membership had only 350 families, which was a decline from the 800 families in the 70s and 80s. And so the magnificent building, with its stained glass windows and its carved mahogany, will become and has become luxury apartments for Syracuse University students. This is happening all over the country. Synagogues, churches, mosques, meeting places, closing. And it has nothing to do with money, believe it or not. It has to do with what I see as a fundamental shift in culture. 
And what is this shift of culture? I think we see it manifest, believe it or not, in a resistance to getting the vaccine. If we have entered into a cultural norm of what we call the selfie era, then what's in the selfie is the only important thing. This metaphor is striking. We are the center of the frame of the selfie. And the frame itself is the border of our community. That is to say, not much of a community. And if the self is the only thing worth building, then any other person or relationship that does not directly benefit the self is discarded. One real consequence of this is that no real relationships are formed. Only temporary parties, after which people say goodbye and they go their separate ways. Now, the wonderful thing about a synagogue is that this is where we come together. And it is only in the coming together that we can actually meet. When we study together, when we learn together, when we argue together, when we listen to each other and look beyond the selfie to another part of ourselves, everybody benefits. It is what Martin Buber called the I-thou relationship. But too many people, sadly, have turned the I-thou relationship into an I-I relationship. There were Jewish communities which perfected the I-I relationship, by the way. The Essenes, who you may not have heard of, were commonly known as the Dead Sea community. And they may have existed as a relatively small community, to be sure, but as, it, uh, but as a community, it was strictly an I-I community, or maybe more accurately, an us-us community. No outsiders were welcome. They learned only among themselves. They lived only among themselves. And when historical forces swept through the land of Israel, they had nowhere to go, and they had nobody to attach to, and they disappeared and were only rediscovered in some fashion after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was their repository of religious writings that had not been read in 1900 years, until the day an Arab shepherd stumbled upon their caves in Qumran in about 1946. Their history is worth learning from. Without real connections, without real relationships rooted in respect and welcome, even if there's not full agreement about everything, the self is going to wander in the desert like the Nazir, as described in the book of Numbers. Now, to remind you, the Nazir was the man or woman described in the Torah who wanted to go have a spiritual experience in the desert. So the Nazir would give up their families, give up their jobs, take care of themselves, and would wander through the desert for 30 days. It was an odd tradition. It was also an old tradition adopted from the early Israelites. No one does it today, of course. I promise you, do not walk in the desert for 30 days. But it must have been a big deal 2,400 years ago. And the narratives tell us that the Nazir, who went out to the desert to find Sorry, God and himself, She's commenting on my sermon. That was Siri. The, the narrative that uh, tells us that the Nazir who went out to the desert to find God in himself or herself 
have to come back to the entrances of the community and make a public sacrifice for everybody to see. Okay, so what's going on here? How is this relevant? Today's Nazir may disappear into the desert of non-community and may never return. And what happens when they do return? They find, sometimes, that what they left is no longer there. I have often said that when the teacher, is, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And that's true. But it's not always true that when the Jew is ready to engage, the community will be waiting. There may not be much of a community to learn with, or a community to pray with, or to debate with, or to engage. The ultimate end of the I-I is that it may end up as oi oi, and rebuilding relationships long neglected is not an easy thing to do. A colleague of mine made the observation of a kind of infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt. Just as physical infrastructure in this country is literally falling apart, and the bridges across rivers are crumbling throughout the country, so too is our social infrastructure. The bridges that should join us are crumbling, and we can't notice because our eyes are on our smartphones for fear that we might miss something. We are missing something, but it isn't what we think. To quote my friend, from this pulpit, I see what you already know to be true. Public engagement is down in favor of a more self-centered life. We are shifting from a world of faith and communal involvement to a life that is defined by our jobs, our social posts, and our LinkedIn profile. We are taking more selfies than photos of others. A life of service is being replaced by one of entitlement. For generations, our social fabric was built on public institutions churches, synagogues, community centers, and libraries, now they are disappearing and we are becoming more and more lonely. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. Next time you go to the restaurant, do an experiment. See how much conversation there is between people at the same time and then see how much time is spent looking at a cell phone. Someone once told me, that they never met a Jew that didn't wear glasses and asked me to explain it. I told her I could not, but I offered the hypothesis that maybe it was so because Jews were always studying with their nose in a book and it seemed like a good answer as any. I suppose even though it borders on the all Jews are smart prejudice, in any event, I wondered if the next generation will say the same thing. We may still need glasses, but will it come from reading holy texts or simply text messages? Gene Twinge wrote a book called iGen, Why Today's Super-Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. Let me read the title again. Why are iGen, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, 
and completely unprepared for adulthood. You can tell from the title what the book is, but the bottom line is this. <laughs> With the relative social isolation our children have, and coupled with the fact that they spend, believe it or not, on average eight to nine hours a day on the weekends looking at their phone, then you have an equation that will leave our children alone and isolated, sometimes suicidal, and completely unready for life outside their selfie bubble. It is terrifying, but it's not too late. We can lament technology, but that's a waste of time. We need to act positively. We must each create real community, not just for ourselves, but for our children as well. And I see that happening. A lot of people are still glued to their phones, and or though a lot of people are still glued to their phones, there is a profound shift that I have seen in these latter stages of COVID. Children who we had to pry out of bed to go to school now jump out of bed to go to school. They seem happier now that they can resume what they had. They've recognized the importance and value of having these relationships, regardless of how uh, many uh, how the many social interactions at school and, of course, insecurities often play out. And just listen to our barn bat mitzvah kids who celebrated in the middle of the pandemic, after delaying their ceremonies for upwards of a year and a half, they share with me the unbounded joy to get together with their friends and their study partners and reestablishing the connections that they had lost. Their sense of celebration is really palpable. And I saw that here at this temple in the midst of the pandemic as well. This past year, Stella and I created a brand new program we called YALA, Young Adult Leadership and Learning Academy. Okay, it mean, YALA, by the way, is an Arabic word, which means to go on, to go forth. And instead of reaching out to college students uh, who are naturally disconnected from their communities by being so far away with just a phone call, we envisioned something of an I-thou connection that we began with them in Teen Academy, which is our post-bar and bat mitzvah program. We sent out invitations to all present and former Beth Miriam College students to come and learn online as an adult with me. Stella and I were expecting what? Six former students, maybe? We would consider ourselves if we got luck. We would consider ourselves lucky if we got that many. We got 16. And once a month we would come together, we would learn online for an hour. And then I want to share something else about Yella that impressed me. Eight of those students' families had left after their bar bat mitzvah. And every one of them shared with me how they yearned for the connection, how they yearned for the safety, the love and the mutual respect that this temple offered and they could find nowhere else. They missed us terribly. And they were not just grateful for the opportunity to come together again, but yearned for it, thirsty for something they didn't even know that they missed. And to underscore this, I suggested maybe doing a Shabbat experience 
before our regular Friday night service, once or twice. And when I suggested getting their kiddish cups from home that was given to them, that were given to them at their bar and bat mitzvah, one child cried. She cried, not realizing how much she had missed the place that gave her that gave her more than a nice ceremony on her 13th birthday. And so the next week, they brought their electric candles, since you can't have real flames in a dorm room. They brought Wonder Bread, since finding challah in Western Virginia is not so easy. And they had their kiddish, kips for, kiddish cups from their bar or bat mitzvah sent to them by their parents. I believe it may have been the holiest Shabbat they ever felt. And they could not have felt it without each other and without the holy community in which they were raised. You bet I will be offering another Yella this year, and I can't wait to reconnect with every student I taught. And I hope this illustrates something for you. The temple is not about praying. We can do that anywhere. We can do it online. In fact, the Hasidic movement in the 19th century intentionally left the synagogue to go pray in the forest and doven by the streams. No, this place is about sharing our lives, our past history, our present reality, our struggles and successes, and our future hopes. It is, I submit, the only place we can do it. I can't think of any other place we can. And that's what my yellow students discovered. Here is more than just a physical place. Here is a spiritual place, a place that has a living soul. It is not the building. It is all of you, all of us, the complicated, the fearful, the joyful, the sad, the confused, and every other adjective to describe the beautiful messiness of a synagogue. An insightful colleague points out that someone once called America the hotel culture. And what is a hotel? Simply a place to stay for a short while. Not a place of rootedness, and someone cleans up your mess when you leave. You never, ever know who lives beside you. And the really important thing you seek is to be left alone. In fact, the little sign that you put on your door is not just a request to the cleaning staff. It really is, if you think about it, kind of a state of mind. This is not to disparage hotels, obviously. But a synagogue must be more than just a hotel, which we use once, check out, and maybe call on in a dark moment. True, the community will be here, God willing. But without your love, your input, your relationship, we would remain bereft because those who are not here have lessened us. This year has been a year of curses and blessing. Curses because of this fakakta pandemic and all the surus that it has engendered. But blessing because so many of us have come to understand that a temple is really a soul place. It is the only place that reaches out that supports you, that weeps with you, that teaches you, that shares a past, a present, and a future all at the same time. It is a place that is messy and beautiful, 
frustrating and uplifting, but always, always holy. This past year has taken an emotional toll on all of us. We are all wounded in one way or the other, but our wounds can be healed by each other and by being surrounded by people who feel the same. Today is the first year of the Jewish year. It is our formal reintroduction to the healing power of a synagogue. It is that holiness that we seek on this Rosh Hashanah uh, uh, evening, and right now, begin to connect in holiness, this sanctuary has become a soul soother. And when it becomes a soul soother, we can leave the cultural hotel of one-night stops and find that our roots can give rise to the beautiful fruits of this I-thou relationship that has been missing from so many of our lives. I pray that each of us finds that connection in the coming year. Shana Tova, let us have a good year.